like, like of them only going to hell for ayam and ma'adudat. So these people are basically saying, we, we know we're going to go to hell, and we know we're going to go to heaven later, and then it says, yes, God is going to do that, but you'll see what days are. No, it says, They say basically, even if there is a hell, if we are going to go, it's going to be a few days. And then Allah subhanahu wa doesn't say that's true. Basically, Allah subhanahu wa is saying they're going to be eternally in hell. They're not going to go a few days in Because instead of believing and doing what they're supposed to do, they're making a mockery out of religion. They're saying, even if I'm going to go to hell, I'm only going to go a few days. These are not the people who believe. I'm one of those people who knows the truth. Okay, I believe in God, I believe in Yawm Al-Qiyamah, I believe in Islam, I believe in Yawm al I have sins. So I know that Allah is going to punish me for my sins. So in my mind, I may go to hell because of my sins. And I hope that Allah will take me out after I go initially to hell. The ayah is not talking about those people at all. It's talking about the people who flagrantly tell the Prophet, yeah, yeah, even if we go to hell, it's going to be a few days and we go out. No, no, it's not like that. The first person, he's regretful. He wishes he was a lot better, that he would never go to hell. But he was weak. He, made, he committed sins. He thinks he's going to go to hell. And he prays that Allah will take him out. Because he still has good belief. He still believes in God. He still has regret that he made mistakes. More I know for sure that there is heaven and hell. But I make a mockery out of religion and say, no, no, a mockery. That. And even if I go, it's going to be a few days. That's what the verses say. So those are not in the same boat. Okay? So, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is helping them dupe themselves, trick themselves about their religions. Now, it's a huge topic in our religion on who goes to heaven, who goes to hell, who goes to heaven eternally and from the beginning? Who goes to hell eternally and what does eternity mean for hell? And are there people who go to both? This is a very big topic. We know for sure that there is a heaven and that heaven is eternal. And that there are people who will go to heaven right away. And that they will stay in heaven forever. Okay, those are the very good people. We know that there are people who will not go to heaven initially. But they will eventually go to heaven. Why? Because they had a lot of sins. They have the correct belief system. So they believed in God. They believed in the Prophet. They believed in the Madhab. Things like that. Depending on what reached them from knowledge, always. They have the correct belief system, but they have a lot of sins. So what happens to them based on the Ruayat? Most likely, we don't know. Okay? All of this, we don't know. I'm going to add the rule at the end of all of this. What most likely seems that will happen to them is that they will go to hell for as long as they need to go to hell to be purified from all their sins. And that's why there are verses of the Qur'an that talk about people who go to hell, but it doesn't say khalidina fiha. It doesn't say they're going to be eternally in hell. For instance, it says, لَابِثِينَ So they remain in it. لَابِثِينَ فِيهَا أَحْقَابَ الْحُقُبْ is probably 80 years to 100 years. Okay, there's different definitions. Why does it say that they remain in hell for centuries? When other verses say, خَالِدِينَ fiha, It's not the same. That's eternal. And there are verses that say, خَالِدِينَ fiha abada. So these become three different layers. 
there is a temporary stay that is very scary because you know, we can't withstand fire for a second. And this ayah is saying for their sins, they're going to go to hell for centuries, for, for bunches of 80 years at a time or 100 years at a time. And there are people who are eternally in hell. And there's another measure that is khalidina fiha abada that the Quran uses for the Jannah. So it's khalidina fiha abada. So there are different measures. Some of our scholars say hell is not eternal. That's one group of scholars. They say that hell eventually disappears into non-existence. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala uses it for that purpose. To all people? Huh? To all people? They, the they say that it does not go with God's mercy. So after it served its purpose of purifying those who need purifying and punishing those who need punishing, that's its purpose. It doesn't need eternal. But really, 10,000 years is still an eternity. And that's why they say that the Quran uses the word Khalidin. But it's not eternity though. But it's not a mathematical eternity, so it doesn't say Abada. But the Jannah is Abada. Because it's a mathematical eternity. Didn't you just say it says in the Quran that uh, some people it does say khalidina fiha abada. Not for now. I, I'm just saying that there are measures. Yeah, the third. That's measure. for jannah. The measure is not for now. The, the the third measure for now. You mean that it never said khalidina fiha abada. The what word is missing nice. from the description of those who go in hell, and that's why some say that abada because it's not there. Then there is no eternal forever. Okay, that's some scholars. Most scholars say, no, there is eternal forever. And they take some verses of the Qur'an and they say, no, there is eternal forever, such as, Those who associate partners with Allah, Allah does not forgive that sin. You say there is God and another God with him. That sin is unforgivable. And God forgives all other sins. And you see the Qur'an insists on the aspect of belief a lot more than action. The Qur'an wants you to have the correct system of belief first and rewards you based on that. And the actions help your system of belief. But it doesn't look at your actions first. Actions are irrelevant. You can do all the correct actions in the world. All your actions could be correct. You can give all the money in the world. You can help people. You can be really good. But until you don't believe in God, the Qur'an considers all of that useless. That means absolutely nothing. So we have in some of our wayat, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will reward you for that stuff in this life. He'll give you money, he'll make you popular, he'll make you a good person, people like you, so on and so forth. He'll find a way to reward you, because God is just. Because you don't believe in the hereafter, you don't believe in Him. You rejected His religion. That's of course, we always add the condition. The condition is, you knew. The truth reached you and you rejected it. And then there are people that fall in this category where... We're not sure if the truth reached them or not. And for them, the Qur'an says, for those people that seem to be, we can call them those who are weaker intellectually, let's say, according to some ruayat and some verses, the Qur'an does not really say what happens to them. So they're left to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. مُرْجَوْنَ لِأَمْرِ Their hope is in the hands of God. إِمَّا يُعَذِّبُهُمْ أَوْ يَتُوبَ Okay? But those are people that the Qur'an considers intellectually weaker because the truth has not reached them. Who falls under that? Methodin. So who really falls in that category? Scholars differ. It's impossible to find someone that the truth does not reach enough that you at least want to look it, look it up. 
start looking into it and understanding it, that it is something important. Or maybe you're someone who's completely brainwashed. Because it's easy to say, you live on a deserted island somewhere, you live in a country that the truth has never reached. Okay, maybe. Today, this is becoming more and more difficult. So this is where you start seeing that there's gray. The last rule that I wanted to add in all of this is there are no guarantees. And this is what the Qur'an tells us. We can guarantee anything for ourselves, whether we can guarantee anything for anyone else. It's, this is out of our hands. We're responsible for ourselves, and the rest is in the hands of God. The Qur'an says, Don't consider yourself purified or pure. Allah is the one who knows who is God-fearing, or who is pious, or who is religious. And that you know what's going on in the heart? You don't. You can't even tell what's going on in your own heart. You're not sure if you're completely sincere or not. I say you want to go judge someone else and say, Hada is going to hell, Hidaki is going to heaven. Based on what? Based on an external appearance that may even be mistaken. Even your external appearance of it may be mistaken. That's why this role, this... We should never be fall in that trap of saying, and that group is going to heaven, that group is going to hell, that group is unacceptable. And we're responsible for ourselves. You're responsible to be the best person you can, after inshallah, God treats you with his mercy and not with his justice. Right? That's what we want. We don't want God's justice. No one is ready for God's justice. What we want is God's mercy. We want to live a life that places us in a position so that we receive God's mercy in this life and the next life. That's what we want. And then hopefully that's enough to never go to hell. And this is where love of Ahlul Bayt and the importance of Shafa'ah and things like that come into play. That's where we say, okay, the human being, a normal human being, because of their love and attachment to the Quran, they might become a Shafi'ah, right? And so they are allowed to do intercession and to bring people into heaven and pull people out of hell. Or just because you are a religious girl, for instance, in our ruayat, you do not enter into heaven, you stand at the door until you get your father and your mother into heaven with you. That's one of the merits of being a woman in Islam. That there's nothing like that for men. You're responsible for yourself and good luck. <laughs> a woman, by default, there are merits like that. They're mentioned in the ruayat. Anyway, so that's, that's a really big topic. That wasn't good. It's good. It's a good question and a good comment. And so I want to add a, little, a few more questions for us. So basically the point of what we said is that religion is instinctive. Religion is natural. But it's not enough. We can't rely only on our instinct. We need theory. We need to spend time studying our religion. It's about to each to the extent that they think is sufficient. That's the idea that because it's instinctive, I don't need to study it is unacceptable. So it becomes a rational obligation on all of us to have a foundation in religion. You have to get it somewhere. Whether you attend classes, whether you read, you study, you do whatever you got to do. But you have to get a foundation in religion that tells you, this is right, this is religious, and this is not religious. Enough so that you can at least live your life. And you have your references. You know, at home, you don't know all the words in the world, but the help dictionary... When you need to, you go get it. And you look into it. You know at least where to look. You need that at least in religion. You have to ha know where, what's the sandbox that you play in, where the sandbox stops and you shouldn't step outside. Right? So the question, if we want to look at all of this from a more spiritual aspect, 
What did the verses tell us? The verse, the first one was very ge generic. The second one, I said it because I wanted to show that Imam Sadiq see how his example comes from the Quran directly. He just gives a bit more detail. Okay, he makes the ayah speak to us a lot more. The verse says, they take or you take to the sea, you go on the ship, and then the ayah doesn't go in the details, but basically it means there are storms, you're scared, you think you're going to die. The verse doesn't say what happens. You go, you embark on the boat. Danny, what happened? Well, something happened that makes you pray to God. Exactly. You think you're going to die. So you pray to God. Once they reach, once they reach the land, what happens to them? They become mushrikuf. You go back to your initial state. Okay. The first verse was, there is no bounty that you get, except that it comes to you from Allah. And then when the calamity or difficulty comes to you, you cry out or you groan to him, beseeching his help. Then when he removes the difficulty or the calamity from you, when the difficulty is removed, it's the same thing. So what we used it for initially was we're trying to show human instinct is to believe in religion. When does that belief really come out? In danger. When you're really last in danger. Hope, last hope. You're pushed. You're at the last thing. That there's nothing left. You're put in a difficulty. That's it. You remember God. Okay. So the first part of this means this changes the whole way we think about difficulties in life. Yani difficulties are not just difficulties. Maybe for a lot of us, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sends the difficulty as a reminder. Until we go back to God. Because we've forgotten Him too much. And there's what, been one warning, two warnings, three warnings, it's not enough. You need a real difficulty. Until this one wakes you up back to, brings you back to God. If you're not in a difficulty, you're not going to go back. Not everybody. Some people, that's what they need. If you're a real believer, you're aware of God, you use that as a reminder. If you're not, you won't see it. Asanin, can you become a disbeliever because of the difficulty? You say the world is full of evil, or there is no God, or He never answers my prayer, or khalas. It's over. And then the person who's a believer, he might thank God for that difficulty because he says, I have now become a lot more faithful, a lot closer to God. I pray a lot more. He brought me back with that difficulty. He brought me back to my instinct. Through that means, he brought me back to faith, to religiousness, to attachment. That's the point, right? That's one. The second thing, more practical, and there's a lot we can talk about for that point. The second piece is more, so what do we need to do? that we don't become of those people who only remember God when there is that kind of difficulty. Because that's not the point. This is as a last resort, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is sending us the difficulty to deal with, to remind us. Yani basically we have to see it as a mercy. As, as though we were going to sing to Allah, He threw to us subhanahu wa ta'ala, He threw us a, a safety buoy, right? Uh, something, a tube, a, a piece of wood to rescue us. Otherwise, I know we're going astray. 
خلاص we completely forgot about him we're living our life and then that difficulty comes to bring back that attachment so we have to see it as a mercy okay but that means we're kind of done yet. we're at a point where we're getting hopeless so Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala went to an extreme measure to bring us back as they say right okay so how do we live our lives in a way that we're not always we're not at the edge that we don't need that extreme measure to be brought back to remember God. How that becomes our real question. Hatta our instinct of recognizing God is not only awakened when the ship is broken and the moment we're about to die at sea and we're hopeless. Our instinct should be open, awakened all the time. The exception should be that we forget. And this is the link that the Quran always makes by this word, this dhikr. It comes back in different manners, in different ways in the Quran. The Quran refers to itself as dhikr. It's a remembrance. The Quran is a reminder or a remembrance. And then the Quran talks, that becomes a whole theme in the Quran. Who remembers? The Quran says, Reminders or the remembrance only serves those who have belief. Those who don't have belief, they don't get the point. It doesn't work as a reminder for them. You don't wake up. As we said, one person, he goes, wow, I was gone too far. Alhamdulillah, subhanAllah, this happened. It's good for me. The other person says, I don't believe anything. It's over. Why did this happen? It means there is no religion, there is no God, there is no nothing. It's not the same thing. It depends on your background. The Quran says, if you are a believer, when you're reminded, it helps. So then the, the question becomes, what do you need to do to force yourself to be in constant remembrance, in constant reminding of yourself? That's why the Quran calls itself a reminder. Look, the importance of reminder and remembrance of Islam. It talks about the most important rituals in Islam. Is there something more important than Salah? Salah prevents you from Fahsha and Munkar, from something that is not good, that's Munkar, where Fahsha is like perversion, corruption, that kind of translation, right? Forgetting God. And then the verse adds, we always say religion, and religion, prayer is the most important thing. And then the ayah adds one part. Remembering God is even greater than prayer. As important as prayer is, there is this remembrance of God. So, if we don't want to be of those people, it's very good for us to understand this philosophy of difficulties in Islam. That's a huge topic. We can explain, and inshallah, we, we, we will spend a lecture talking about the philosophy of dealing with difficulty in Islam. What do we do with difficulties? Do we have to see them as evils, or is there more to them? Today, we talked about one aspect, which is maybe they are a mercy. There's a lot more. We'll talk about that. That should be a topic. It deserves a topic. There's a social dimension, there's a psychological dimension, it's for your discipline, it's to know who's good and bad, it's to do with action, not with words, and so on and so forth. Okay? There's a whole philosophy 
that we can call the philosophy of dealing with difficulties in Islam. And then, for us, that's one part, put it aside, for us practically, what does it mean to be in a state of remembering God? That we don't become of those who only remember God when we are in an extreme difficulty. And we understand that our fitrah, our fitrah is to be constantly in attachment with God. The link with God is there. That's your true nature. You want to be at peace. Everybody talks about mental illness, mental health, stress, anxiety, problems of depression, all of that, right? So what do we need? So that you make your heart at peace. The Quran says, "Ala You want to bring back your heart to a state of peace, a state of serenity, a state of tranquility. You go back to the state of dhikr again. So dhikr, sometimes we say dhikr means with your tongue you say the words, you know, you do dhikr. You say 100 times, whatever. You say 1,000 times, whatever. Okay, that's a dhikr. But that's the dhikr of a tongue. That's the dhikr of a lisan. And it's good, and you get tawab for that. But obviously, when the Qur'an is saying that dhikrullahi akbar min as-salat, dhikrullahi akbar, it's not talking about saying words with your tongue. When the Qur'an says that ala bidhikrullah tatma'innul qulub, it's not talking about saying a few words. It's not a magic spell that you say and suddenly your heart is at peace. It means that God is present to you. Is that you remember the presence of God. That's the key. And of course, rituals help. Coming to this place does not make you more religious. This is just my body moving, sitting here, instead of sitting at home. That, that part is not a big deal. But it does affect me when I come here and I see a face of one person who reminds me of God or religion, or a voice, or a picture, or sawad, or the environment. That becomes a ritual. That's the importance of rituals. They are constant hooks, constant reminders, bringing you back. The ritual, sometimes we criticize rituals, and it's okay to criticize rituals, okay? Any ritual is something you have to repeat. It's part of the symbols of a religion, to do actions. It's okay. What part do we criticize? We criticize the part that when the ritual becomes the point, the ritual is never the point. When someone says the ritual is the point, there's always a higher purpose, a higher meaning behind a ritual. If you miss that point, you've become one of those who has a superficial understanding of religion. And if you become one of those, it's very easy to shubha wahda, one doubt will come and will destroy your religion. Yeah, and you don't understand the spirit of what you're doing. You don't understand the point, the purpose. You're stuck at the actions. You're stuck at, you think siyam is going hungry. It's not about going hungry. This is a means to something much higher. It has a spiritual side, it has a psychological side. This is just the outside version of it. If you see that deeper meaning of what it actually does to you, or at least understand it, even if you don't feel it. Now, there are people who feel it. How easy is it for them to do it when they feel it? You taste something good, why wouldn't you do it? But maybe you don't taste it. Maybe it's difficult. But at least you understand what it's... It's like going on a diet. You can't get someone to go on a diet if they don't believe what it does for them. But the person who really visualizes how they're going to look at the end, they're motivated by it, they don't mind. They'll do it. 
Sahih? That's the difference. The person who does the fasting and knows what, what's happening to them, they'll happily do it. This is the difference. The ritual is only there to help you to something else. Do you see the something else or are you stuck at the ritual? Dhikr cannot become a ritual. You have to know the meaning. You have to know the meaning of the ritual, of the action, the significance of what it is, what it does to your heart, what it does to your soul. Even if you don't understand it fully, put yourself in that state. Until you get, you go get that piece. That's messy. Yeah. Uh, just a quick question: Can uh, something that's wajib be considered a ritual? Of course. Right. All the wajib is ritual. No, like, Salah like, is for ritual. example, as a ritual, but like for example, dhatam is not like wajib. You know? Yes. Yeah. So, but like fasting is also is is, is wajib in Islam. Yes. So it's like, are they what like considered ritual? Like adi to. Uh, of course. Yeah. Same thing. Actually, one of the companions of the Imam came to the imam, and he stood with the imam beside the pilgrimage, and that year there were a lot of people, and he told him, Ibn Rasulullah, ma akthar al-hajij. Look at the amount of people there are here. And what did the imam respond? He said, ma aqall al-hajij, wa ma akthar al-hajij. There's a lot of posseh, there's a lot of noise and mess and those who are actually performing the pilgrimage are so few. That was the answer of the Imam. Which means what? Did he not just criticize the outward part of the ritual? When the Holy Prophet says, how many of those who pray are there that only get out of their prayer get it standing up and sitting down? Is that not criticizing the outward appearance of the Salah? Is the Prophet saying don't pray? No. He's not criticizing the ritual. He's criticizing what you're doing with the ritual. If to you, salah is just standing up, sitting down, he's criticizing you. When a man was praying very fast in the mosque in front of the Prophet, he says, It's like he's a crow. The way a crow eats, with his beak, he just hits the ground to take uh, whatever he's eating, just going down and up like this. So that's, that's all he's getting out of his prayer. And we have even more severe narrations that say, that person is cursed. Allah curses that person. There's other riwayat that say the person prays. Prayer does not even get elevated beyond the roof, the ceiling of the house. The malaika come back and they hit him with it on the face. In the okay? It's symbolic, but we have to understand what it means. It doesn't serve a purpose. Right? If you see Imam Ali السلام, when he talks about this, he always says Zad. Zad is what? Is the food you take with you on a trip. He says the a'mal are like food you take with you on a trip. If you imagine your prayer being like a piece of khubuz, a piece of pita bread that you're going to take with you on a trip, then how do you want that piece of bread to be when you're in the desert, in the middle of nowhere? Do you want it to be half burned, half cooked, small, disgusting? That's all the food you have. That's all the food you're going to need for your eternity. That's the food that becomes your hell or your heaven. So that was the, the extension of the discussion that we had about Fatah. The extension was more the spiritual reflection about, yes, our religion, our attachment to God is instinctive. But our instincts, we cannot rely on them because they're not stable. They vary. We're not all born with the same instincts. Some people are born more pure than others. That's a fact. And then our instincts vary in our lives. Because of our external environment. And that means, reminds us, put yourself in an environment that helps you become better instinctively. Right? 
There are people, for instance, and now when you go to self-help courses, you read books, one of the first things they teach you, they tell you get rid of the people who are a poison in your life, who poison your thinking, who are negative, who don't help you with your dreams. That's what they tell you here. Well, the same thing for us. We're saying the environment influences you. The environment is going to help you use your true instinct, your nature, or push it down on the ground. The one who pushes it in the ground, your nest, your soul. The one who is able to purify it is going to be successful. And the one who's going to push it into the ground is the one who's going to be a loser. So the environment impacts, your birth impacts, which means so you have to dedicate time to study in your religion. The theory, the reason part. You can't just rely on your goodness, the goodness of your heart and your instinct and just saying, I'm attached to God. Unless you're one of those who is 100% sure that you are pure and that your attachment to God is 100% pure and that you are, you are fully understanding of what God is and His attributes and the way you're supposed to get attached to Him by instinct, good for you. You're a very, very rare exception to humanity. For the rest of the people in the world, you need something else. And that something else is a theoretical or rational or philosophical understanding of religion. Okay, that was a topic. Now we can really finish that topic. The other piece that I wanted to give today, and I'm not going to now go into any details, I wanted to talk a little bit about the life of Mount Sajjad since two days ago or three days, eight days ago was his martyrdom, was the anniversary of his death. The relevance of Imam al-Sajjad is that we just talked about Karbala. So Imam al-Sajjad, Ali ibn al-Hussein, is the son of Imam al-Hussein who was with him during the events of Karbala, but he was paralyzed. He couldn't do anything. So he didn't fight with his father and with his uncles and with his brothers. And everybody died and he was the one man left, taken as a prisoner, sick, ill, with the rest of the woman. So I wasn't going to talk about that part. As sad and tragic as that is, and it deserves a lot of talking. That whole journey from the Imam to Kufa and to Sham and back to Medina. Because Imam Sajjad basically, he was born two years before the death of Imam Ali. So he was two years old when Imam Ali passed away, when he was killed. And then he lived ten years with Imam Al-Hasan. He's the son of Imam Al-Hasan. So ten years... So now he's 12 years old, Imam al-Hassan passes away. And then he's about 22 years old in the events of Karbala. And he passes away when he's about 57 years old. So it means that he was the Imam for about 35 years old, 35 years of his life. The last 35 years of his life, he was the Imam. He took over the role of the Imam from Imam al-Hussein, his father, and gave it to Imam al-Baqir when he died at 57. So I wanted to spend a little bit of time talking about that. So what happened to society? that required which role from Imam al-Sajjad, which role from Imam Zayl Imam Hussein just led a revolution against Yazid. He took the best of the people with him, his family members, the best of the companions were all Imam Hussein, they all got killed. So what did Imam al-Sajjad do? And this is one more we talked, we started talking about this last week. We said this is gonna, the more we study the lives of Ahl al-Bayt, we see how strategic and tactical they are. They don't behave, however. They behave in the smartest way, the best way, the most efficient way, based on the social environment. 
Imam Sajjad he saw that that society that he lived in, the spirit of Islam had disappeared. All that was left of Islam were the empty rituals. There was still a call to prayer. There was still Adam. The people who killed Imam Hussein, they, they stood and prayed. They prayed. They read Quran. Right? Shiva was known to be Jabah Sud. He had a black, a black forehead in Shiva from the amount of sujood that he used to do. So it's not there's a lack of faith. It's not that there's a lack of rituals. They read Quran, they do the prayer. But what kind of distorted religion do they have that they can kill Imam Hussein, who is the grandson of the Prophet who brought them their religion? What kind of distortions have happened to this religion? And of course, I hope you can see how easily we can apply that to our day today. When there are plenty of people who know the Quran and who pray, and yet the idea of religion in their mind is so distorted. So what did the Imam do? What was his tactic? What was his strategy? If the Imam was to be open and to start preaching and to start teaching religion and telling everybody is wrong, what would have happened? Right away. They just killed his father and they in fact wanted to kill him and then they fought amongst themselves and one of them told the other, what are you going to do with him? He's a paralyzed man, he can't even pick up a sword. Just leave him be. Don't kill him. When they, that's after when they came. Everybody was killed and they burned the Qiyam and everything. They wanted to kill him on Sajjad and they fought amongst themselves, the army of Amar bin Sa'd. And some said kill him and some said don't kill him. So it came very close. But they didn't kill them. So it would have been very easy for them to kill him if he had given them a pretext to kill him. But he didn't. So what did he do instead? How did he teach religion? So they say that Imam started concentrated on the part of Islam that was completely missing, which is the spirit of Islam, which is the spiritual aspect of Islam. He reintroduced Islam from that way. So today we have some of his works. We have to see these as treasures, and we have to understand how the Imam basically took all of his knowledge, everything that he wanted to teach the people that he couldn't, and he put them in these works. The biggest one, the famous one is Sahih al-Sajjadiyah. What is a Sahih al-Sajjadiyah? It's 54 prayers. That's it. It's a prayer. You sit and you read it. It takes you two minutes. Dua. Dua to praise Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Dua to read salawat on the Prophet. Dua to remember the Holy Prophet. Dua when you see the moon at the beginning of the month. Dua, so for all the events of life, there's a dua. So if you want to understand the teachings of the imam, read those du'as. Because they are more than just a few words that the imam is saying as a ritual. The imam is putting all his teachings in those small prayers. And of course, there's a sahifa al-kamila. So the short version of sahifa sajjadiyya is those 53 or 54 prayers. But... Some versions of a Sahih al-Sajjadiyya are longer. They have a few more, and they add to them the 15 invocations. These are the whispered prayers. They're all available, translated in English, very easy to read. It takes one minute to read one. Read it and see what you find in it. But read it with that in mind. Don't just read the words. Read it with the context the Imam was in and what he was trying to put back into Islam and society that was missing. There's things that the Imam would do. For instance, we hear that he would read the Quran in a loud voice from inside his house because we have in our riyadh that people would come and would block the way because no one could leave when they would hear his voice, how beautiful it was. Okay, but why is the Imam reading in a loud voice? 
I said the beauty of his voice is another topic. He's reintroducing things that obviously were missing in his time, in Islam. Or we have in some rawayat that he would take his prayer mat, sajadah, and he would go outside the house and he would put it in front of the, the entrance to his house and he would pray. What does that tell you about that society? Were they even praying right? He's making a point to pray publicly, in the road. And yoga, anyone would say, this is a wrong behavior. What are you doing praying in the road? No, the imam prayed publicly. He would take his prayer mat and he would... This starts to show you what was going on in that world and how the imam was countering. And one final point, and this is the homework I was going to give you, is to read his treaties of rights. So we have a Sahif al-Sajjahiyya and we have the treaties of rights. It's a Rasale. It's a little... It's not even a booklet. It's a few papers. It would be like two, three pages of a book. Could be if it's written small. Of your rights, the rights of yourself and of God and of people on you. That's a very modern notion, the notion of rights. There is a charter of rights in Canada. Declarations of rights and charters of rights. All countries have them. They're available in the United Nations. The world has had, is now living in a world where everybody understands everything in terms of rights and responsibilities. Right? Okay, the Imam wrote a treatise of rights 13 centuries ago. The one you're going to find online, you just write the treatise of rights of Imam al-Sajjad or Imam Zayn al-Abideen or Ali ibn al-Hussein. I'm sure you're going to find there's a lot of versions online. Just a few examples. The right of God. That's one right. The right of yourself. The right of your tongue. <laughs> <laughs> the, right, the right, that's the homework. The right of your ear. It's seven organs he mentioned. The right of your eyes. The right of your hands. Let me jump. The right of prayer. The right of someone who has nourished you with knowledge. The right of someone you taught knowledge. The right of your wife. The right of your mother, father, brother, child. Neighbor, friend, right of someone who has done goodness towards you, the right of wealth. Each one of them is a tiny two line, three lines. But obviously, as we said, the Imam has put a lot of knowledge in a few words. He is rectifying society. He wants to put society back on track, but he puts the spirit of Islam back into it. After the few good people in the world have now all been killed, and he has to single handedly rebuild Islam. All alone, with no armies, with no companions, with no followers. So he concentrated on this aspect. Okay? And he became the link between that world of Amawiyin and then Al Abbasin when they started to take over with Imam al Baqir and then Imam al Okay? And then, inshallah, another day we can talk a lot more in detail about the life of Imam And that's all I have for today. Allahumma salli ala Muhammad wa ali Muhammad.